Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world. The way it was and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. This is episode 41.5, A Chat with Christopher Smith. While I was on vacation, uh, JT, Brian, and Howe got together and uh, had a quick chat with Christopher Smith, uh, who's the author of two books that are available on Amazon, The Walt Disney World That Never Was, and the backstories and magical secrets of Walt Disney World. So they had a nice chat with him the other night, and uh, we'd like to bring that to you now. And joining us today is a special guest, Chris Smith. How you doing, Chris? Hey, guys. Doing great. Uh, looking forward to talking some fun Disney stuff with you guys tonight. For sure. So this is episode 41 and a half, and we're going to call it just a chat with Chris Smith about his books. Uh, Chris has a number of books he kind of gave us the opportunity to read check out and we were pretty uh, excited about them so we wanted to get him on the show and just sort of uh, pick his brain and uh, go through them here chris so uh first off just tell us a little bit about yourself you know where you're from how you got started and all this and then you know maybe some of your uh favorite disney memories sure so um i work in uh, huntsville alabama which is in the northern part of the state um uh, I'm an attorney by day, uh, but have been a, a, a passionate Disney fan since I was a child and uh, grew up in a very uh, rural part of the state, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of the days kind of, you know, out exploring and using my imagination. And, and, and we were uh, lucky enough to have the Disney Channel, you know, growing up. And so I spent a lot of my times out kind of imagining I was part of these these different Disney stories. And my parents were finally able to uh, scrape together enough money in 1984 when I was seven to take our family down uh, to Disney World, which was a, a big thing for us. And uh, kids you not, I mean, that experience literally changed my life, right? Actually being able to step inside and live these, these, these stories that I'd kind of you know, only uh, imagined uh, you know, as a kid really kind of changed me at a, uh, at a formative stage. And um, I'm sure my wife now wishes I'd never taken that first trip, um, <laughs> you know, because it has, it has spurned, you know, a, a, a fun Disney obsession, uh, that's lasted, um, certainly, uh, through today. Very cool. Um, so you said your first trip is 84. How many times do you think you've been since then? Oh man. Um, <laughs> uh, over a hundred. Wow. Uh, certainly. Uh, I get that. We get down now, maybe. Uh, I take a family trip down once a year. I go down for marathon weekend and then usually, uh, you know, find an excuse to take a couple of research trips, um, you know, for, for book purposes through the years too. So, uh, I get down there pretty, pretty frequently. What's your, uh, favorite resort? Favorite resort? Uh, man, it's tough. Um, or better yet, what's the, what's say, the one you stayed at in 84? That's the one I'm curious about. 
We we stayed off site in '84. Uh, okay. Uh, we we you know my family we really were kind of you know scraping the the quarters together to go make it happen. But I I think I personally enjoy the Wilderness Lodge um, the the most. But uh, we have a we have twins that are five now. We've taken them down the last two years and had we had never stayed at the Contemporary before uh, and decided to stay there just because of the proximity to the Magic Kingdom and being able to walk. And man, I tell you what, we we really love it. Uh, like it a lot more than I thought we would, and certainly that Disney nostalgia helps a lot uh, with that. For sure. So yeah, so you've done two books that uh, I think we're talking to you about tonight. The first, the backstories and magical secrets of Walt Disney World. The other is the Walt Disney World that never was. Uh, how did you? First of all, which one did you write first, and what was the impetus for it? Sure. So uh, the first book was the Walt Disney World that never was, and uh, you know, again, being a, a big fan of Disney history, uh, and I'm I, I do corporate work in my in my legal practice, and so this is a a, a Disney nerd confession. Uh, one of the things I collected were annual reports of the Disney Company. And that's that's horrible to even say out loud for you know, and and in front of you know non-safe company. But um, you know those for those who don't know, shareholder reports are disclosure documents that the company puts out each year. Um, and certainly those are public documents today because the Disney is a public is, is a public company. But some of those early reports from the late 1960s, early 1970s, you know, just as a fan reading those, I saw kind of all these these brilliant concepts like a, a Thunder Mesa or, you know, some of these resorts that, that, that never came to be. And I was always fascinated about, you know, how, you know, just incredible those ideas looked, but I knew that they, they never actually were implemented in the parks. And so that sparked a little bit of a curiosity. Um, and the more I looked into those, I discovered that there were, you know, the ideas themselves were really cool, right? I mean, the thought of some of these, the, these, these attractions and lands that never came to be, but as I dug a little deeper, I saw that the stories of why they were never actually constructed uh, were stories of the Disney company itself and, and the company's kind of response to things like economic external pressures and internal creative disputes. Um, and I thought, man, this would just be a fantastic uh, concept to, 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 to put a book together on. And uh, really, you know, it, we, I, I thought we kind of, you know, captured lightning in a bottle because... Uh, you know, for my other book, you know, Backstories and Magical Secrets, you know, a lot of Disney fans love those details. Some aren't as crazy about them. But for, for things, thinking about what could have been, um, every Disney fan I've run across is really captivated by that subject. Um, and so had a lot of success with that. So in your Unbuilt Attractions, uh, obviously the lead one, we've talked about it on previous podcasts, but... Um, the most famous unbuilt attraction is Thunder Mesa. And for the benefit of folks who've not read your book or may not have listened to those couple of episodes where we brought it up, can you tell us a little bit about Thunder Mesa? Sure. So, you know, uh, the way I describe it in my book is if, if, if um, you know, the Walt Disney World that never was was a sports hall of fame, then Thunder Mesa would be Babe Ruth, right? And, uh, you know, I, I think the reason for that is it kind of combines everything. It combines brilliant Imagineers, uh, a fascinating concept, and, 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 and really just a ton of great stories. But uh, Thunder Mesa was not an attraction per se. It was actually going to be uh, an entire subland uh, of Frontierland that would have included uh, kind of a runaway mine train type roller coaster, 
um, a a uh, western themed version of Pirates of the Caribbean on the Western River Expedition, uh, and then several other you know kind of walk through cool things to see. Um, what really, what I really enjoy about Thunder Mesa is, you know, the the man principally behind that concept, Mark Davis. Um, and for those who don't know, you know, Mark Davis, he's my personal favorite Imagineer. Uh, started out in Disney Animation uh, in the 30s and 40s. Brought to life some of the, you know, uh, you know, if you want to feel like you haven't accomplished much in life, read Mark Davis's bio. He, you know, <laughs> created Snow White and Cinderella and um, uh, Tinkerbell and all these wonderful characters and then transition to theme park development in the 60s. And the two attractions that he's most known for in terms of his contributions are Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion. And uh, certainly people who are making lists of, of the top attractions you know, in Disney history, those two are usually at the top. Um, Mark set, uh, in terms of you know, planning new attractions for uh, the Florida project for, for Walt Disney World, set a, a, a small goal for himself, which was create the greatest Disney concept, attraction concept ever, right? And coming from a brilliant mind who was behind the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, I think that, that shows you what type of concept this was. And, and uh, another one of the more exciting things is, unlike some of these other concepts where we kind of have maybe one piece of concept art, where we have to you know, piece together certain pieces of the puzzle, we have so much data and so many concept drawings for Thunder Mesa that we really have a great feel in terms of what what all that would have would have included. Um, and you know, I, I love the concept. I wish it would have been implemented. Um, you know, but one of the things you have to be careful of in terms of talking about you know what what never came to be is is what would have happened if Thunder Mesa were, were constructed. Right? I mean, two of my favorite attractions in the Magic Kingdom today are Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And those are certainly direct descendants from the Thunder Mesa concepts, right? So even though I, I wish we would have gotten Thunder Mesa, I don't think I could erase those two attractions uh, either. But as you guys know, for a laundry list of different reasons, the Thunder Mesa concept never came to be. And one of the overarching concepts, um, you know, and never was, is that on construction projects, you know, you guys probably know this from your own homes, right? Even residential construction projects, you can always count that costs are going to to get completely out of hand, right? <laughs> sure, you know, sure. and, and, and when you think about theme parks, that is even more so the case, right? And that's what initially pushed Thunder Mesa back from a drawing boards, and then you know, a lot of other factors just kept kept knocking it down the chain until eventually. Um, it you know it, it's it ended up on some imaginary shelf and, and and never made it fully uh, realized into the parks. So what year was that? Thunder Mesa was in the. It works. was it was uh, in the late 1960s. So you know being planned for the parks opening, oh, okay. then it got pushed to phase one, which was made the first five years after the park was open. Um, and you know the famous story is is you know you know. People forget, you know, I, th I think you guys know this from a historical context, that, you know, context is king, right? You know, we know now that the Disney company are theme park experts, but back then, there was only Disneyland, right? And so when they're planning this new project in Florida, you know, they really had to walk a, a fine line of wanting to, you know, replicate attractions from California to, to kind of build off that momentum in, 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 in Florida, but also creating new concepts, right? Well, strangely enough, you know, the most popular attraction in Disneyland, Pirates of the Caribbean, 
they decided not to replicate in Florida. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason for that, you know, is is you know, it's funny thinking back today that that uh, Imagineers thought that because Florida was so close to the actual Caribbean that it wouldn't be a unique enough experience. And kind of pouring through these old shareholder reports, I kid you not, it was a throwaway line that I found that that these planners thought that people would be visiting Disney World in conjunction with a larger trip to the Caribbean, right? So there was an actual reason behind this. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm from Florida, and we have pirates everywhere. I mean, they just <laughs> randomly walk around on the street. Well, pirates and, are so boring and, to us. And the irony that 30 years later, they would build a theme park all about California in California. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, you know, uh, again, you know, it, it's crazy to look back at things the way, you know, they were then as opposed to, you know, the the, the hindsight now. But, you know, as you guys know, when the park opened and there was no Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, uh, you know, Disney received a lot of fan backlash. You know, we want pirates. And so uh, Card Walker, the then president of the company, you know, greenlit an expedited version of Pirates, uh, which was, again, you know, another huge hit uh, to Thunder Mesa's hopes of, of being constructed in the parks. And there was a lot of friction uh, between Tony Baxter and Mark Davis once they bought into the Big Thunder Mountain, right? Yeah, that, that, that's right. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, again, that's what's so tough, you know, when you're looking back at this Thunder Mesa concept. You had all these different body blows the concept kept taking. Uh, and, the, you know, the story is, is that, you know, while some, some high-level Disney executives were touring, you know, the Imagineering idea uh, plant, uh, so to speak, um, you know, Tony Baxter's there with this massive model of Thunder Mesa. And, you know, you know, essentially, you know, critiques the, that concept and sells a standalone mine train type concept that, 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 you know, we all know today as Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. You know, with Pirates of the Caribbean being constructed and now with a, a, a mine train attraction, at that point, you know, the, the hopes of Thunder Mesa um, coming to be are, are essentially done. That did create a, a large amount of friction between Mark Davis and Tony Baxter, who was you know kind of the the most famous of those those second generation Imagineers, uh, that I don't know uh, you know was ever fully repaired. What I found interesting was was that a few years ago at, at the D twenty three conference, Tony Baxter gave a very you know kind of telling presentation on the Thunder Mesa concept, right? Which I thought was extremely interesting. We got a lot of data from that we didn't know before. Yeah, and it was just interesting that he was the one giving that. Well, and he had said in that, you know, he mentioned that Mark never forgave him for it, but, you know, he's at that generation, he was also aware that they were never going to build it. They were at a point where that was just not a massive scale investment they were going to make. And he thought that, and they were looking for a thrill ride at that point, uh, because all the Six Flags parks and the, at that time, the precursors to the Cedar Points and Six Flags and, you know, that have all kind of developed over the years. But they, there was a lot of those standalone parks near here. It was Great Adventure before it was Six Flags Great Adventure. Right. Um, and Magic Mountain in California. I mean, they were all adding these in the 1970s, these big tubular track looping roller coasters and stuff like that. And uh, Disney wanted to get in on the action. And Tony Baxter had a proposal and no one else did. So, yeah, and you know, I, th- I think that I mean, it's really, it's really a sad story because you know, everything I, I've never had the opportunity to meet Tony Baxter in person, but everything I've read about him, you know, 
he's just the nicest guy you'll ever meet, right? And uh, you know, and it's and it's and you know, I know from what I've read and other people I've talked to, you know, he he, I, I think if you ask him even today, he feels terrible about that that conflict that arose. Uh, but it's just one of those things that you know, Imagineers. And again, that's, that was another reason for doing the Never Was book. You know, Imagineers poured their hearts and souls into these concepts, right? Especially Thunder Mesa, maybe more so than any other concept. And, you know, when, when you kind of put yourself out like that and the, and the concept never comes to be, man, that's a tough thing to, to, to live with, right? We see that in our personal pre- well, professional yeah, lives. Especially since they had had the, at the, when you entered the park, they had that promotional model for thunder mesa and the 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 uh what was the talking bird how or the oh yeah who gets who, who gets right right and, you know they had that until the, like 1980 when they finally decided like okay let's box this thing up and <laughs> that, that was kind of the you know just the, the the icing on top of this tough cake to swallow was they never really came out and said we're not doing thunder mesa right i mean you kept seeing and hearing whispers and seeing little glimpses glimpses of information late into the 70s, right? And then finally, you know, when you get Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, finally it's, you know, and, and certainly with Epcot and the money they were pouring into to that development project as well, at that point, the writing was on the wall. So so we'll get to Epcot, but the, 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 what you just talked about is interesting because you talked about how they never come out and say, we're not doing this after announcing it, uh, which we've gotten more used to in recent years. But I think another recent example in your book is the David Copperfield Sunset Boulevard area of uh, of Disney MGM Studios. Yeah, that you know, um, again, context is king, right? Um, you know, when people hear the name David Copperfield now, they may give that a laugh. But you know, back during the early '90s, he was one of the the most famous, most successful entertainers in the world. Oh yeah, I, you he, know, he was on specials. TV. You you watched it, yeah. Absolutely. Made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Yeah, he walked through the Great Wall. I mean, you just know (laughs) these events. Like, I mean, I was like 12, but I was just like, yes, David Copperfield, he's back, you know? Yeah, and so uh, this is also the time when uh, concepts like the Hard Rock Cafe, right, and Planet Hollywood, so these these highly-themed restaurants that had different types of memorabilia displayed were really, you know, blowing up in the U.S. So, oh, my gosh. They were going to open, like, the Fashion Cafe in New York City. There was just, like, one genre <laughs> All-Star after Cafe. Another. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so Cobbfield was, was approached by a venture capitalist with the idea of creating a magic themed restaurant in that type of style, right? With different David Copperfield props and, and, uh, and an interactive experience where magical tricks were performed during, um, you know, during the, the dining experience. Um, and even Disney signed a lease, you know, for the studios, um, in terms of developing that restaurant. Well, as it happens, um, the, the Copperfield group started two restaurants at close to the same time, uh, one in Times Square in New York, than the other in Disney. The Times Square project uh, got a head start, and really, it's it's really amazing to think about. They got very close to completing that restaurant. Costs were just going through the roof. Uh, David Copperfield, a noted perfectionist, uh, was was changing ideas as the construction process was going on, which is not good. Uh, you know, the money guys were thinking, hey, man, let's just get this thing open and, 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 and stop, you know, hemorrhaging th- these funds. Uh, notably, this is I always find this interesting from a, from a business perspective. 
Copperfield did not put any of his actual money into the project, right? <laughs> he, 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 he put his name there and, and also retained creative control, okay. you know? And so uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, they ran out of money. And even though the, the restaurant in New York was 85%, you know, close to completion, uh, you know, just tons of construction lanes were following the project and it shut down. Uh, and, and when that happened, uh, Disney likewise saw the writing on the wall, terminated its lease. But, you know, they had billboards up all around the studios advertising this project. Okay. And, you know, and, and overnight those billboards disappear, you know, just like a, you know, magical trick from Copperfield himself. <laughs> right. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the concept is gone. I don't know, you know, looking back from today's perspective, I don't know if that restaurant would have, would still be there today if it had been constructed back then. But again, the concept seemed seemed like a pretty cool idea. Um, it's just these again these real world business issues and concerns uh, get in the way of the concept. Where was it going to be? Did they have? Do we it, know a place? Yes, yeah, so it was actually going to be. Um, you know, if you're looking at the entrance of the studio, it's going to be to the right hand side of the entrance, right? So it'd be kind of like a rainforest yeah. cafe, from Animal Kingdom, uh, where you could enter oh, the restaurant, okay, okay. you know, without actually entering uh, the park itself. And that's where that billboard was for the longest time. Like over on that right hand side, right up on the hill. Yeah, you've got pictures of, of Michael Eisner and Copperfield, you know, giving each other the, the bromance hug, right? <laughs> Thumbs up. Wait a oh, second, yeah. guys. Is there any proof that it isn't actually there and we just can't see it? He made it disappear. <laughs> so all right, so we brought up Epcot. I it, this is and it's kinda come back. It's kinda come full circle recently as far as the, the world showcase stuff that never happened. It came and went, you know, the even the, the the billboards were up for different things. Kinda go into that. Some of the there's a couple like Israel and we had the different countries and things. What what's the deal with that? Yeah, and it, and it's you know, it's interesting. You know, Epcot more so than any other park you know, as you all know, completely changed from what the initial concepts were going to be to, to what we actually got. But but talking about World Showcase specifically, you know, when, you know, after Walt had passed and the Magic Kingdom had opened and then finally executives turned their mind to, all right, you know, if we're going to do this thing, how is it actually going to make money for the company? Um, they really thought that World Showcase would be easy in terms of getting funding, right? I mean, they thought that countries would jump the opportunity to to sponsor pavilions, to showcase their different cultures, uh, which would, you know, ideally in turn result in more tourism dollars for those specific countries. And, you know, at one time, you know, even, you know, upwards of 30 different countries, you know, were considered. As a matter of fact, you know, it was originally planned that World Showcase would be at the front of the park you know, guests would enter directly into World Showcase with the future world part of the park in the rear. Uh, as it, you know, come to find out, you know, getting those sponsorship dollars are much more difficult than they than they thought. Um, but having said that, even on opening day, as you mentioned, there were billboards up for, for Israel, for Spain, for Iran, and then Equatorial Africa was widely, you know, publicized um, at the mm -hmm. opening of Epcot. And as a, you know, I think this is a kind of a good example of, you know, again, I've been a big fan of Disney history for a long time. And I've been around World Showcase, you know, um, I couldn't even count the number of times. Up until I started actually studying this, this topic, I didn't realize how much open space was available in World Showcase, Right. Even yep. today, these lot, these large plots of land that I, 
in my mind, you know, one pavilion ended and another one began. But instead, you've got these large these large spaces that are there for development that, that Disney looks to be looks to be expanding. Um, but you know, unfortunately, you know, the, I think the approach that Disney Company took, and you know, if we take a step back, uh, I don't like to think of it this way. Uh, but you know, from a historical perspective, we have to. The Disney Company is a company. Right. It has shareholders that sure. it has to answer to. And at the end of the day, uh, they need to make money and make the most money they possibly can. Um, that has deterred them from adding, I think, new world showcase pavilions uh, as opposed to other, you know, uh, you know, you know, intellectual property based attractions and things like that, because based on their studies, new attractions and new lands would generate more uh, guest visits and you know corresponding increase in revenue, whereas adding another pavilion for a showcase might not do that. Now, uh, you know, I think I'm sure you guys are probably aware that has shifted in the last I think five years, right? And we've heard more and more rumors of different um, countries maybe being added, and that's gotten you know even hotter in the last year or two. Yep. Um, if you would have asked me five years ago, I would have told you it's just not going to happen. <laughs> if you ask me today, I would say, I think it is, right? Now, if you ask me which country, I don't, you know, because, again, there's a, you know, Spain was hot on the rumor mill, you know, um, a, a year ago. Brazil. Uh, yes, Brazil is always um, is always the top of that list. I hope we get one. I really do, because I enjoy World Showcase, uh, love the restaurants, love the culture. Um, I wish, um, I don't want to get emails about this, but. I wish there were more attractions in World Showcase. Um, and if you look at the original plans for World Showcase, every uh, every uh, national pavilion was planned to have an attraction, right? Now that was an attraction that showcased the culture of that nation. Not, not you know, obviously not an IP tie-in, which is what we would probably get today. But I do wish there was there was more of that, um, and we are getting some of that uh, now. For sure. Very cool. So that is kind of our, we'll say our very short recap on uh, the Walt Disney World that never was. Um, any more, like we'll say, historical books coming like that? Or are you focusing on the next one here, the next series you think more? Well, I, you know, certainly the next series that we'll talk about, I'm, I'm kind of full speed ahead on that. Sure. I will definitely be coming back to, to never was concepts just because of how uh, I really was blown away about what the what the feedback has been on that. Uh, and there are a lot there, more things to talk yeah, there's, about. There's there. a lot more fun stuff in that book, uh, alien encounter and, uh, oh, yeah. the lost resorts, Persian and Buffalo junction and all that. So we do encourage you to pick that book up and we'll put a link to the purchase in, in the show notes. Yeah. I want to say, haven't gone through it. It's, and I read a lot of this stuff. Like it's a very crisp read. It's very fast. It's, it's, you know, it's concise. It tells you what you need to do. It's, and, it's not overly, some people like, like to get very flowerly and overly verose. It's like, it's just a nice, well-written, crisp read. And I love the fact that you have everything documented about where it came from. So there are great, wonderful footnotes about, oh, this came from this annual report. It's not like a mystery. It's like, he didn't make any of this <laughs> stuff up. Like, it's it's so well-documented. That was I really, really enjoyed and appreciated that fact because you could just sit down read through it and just like i said the, the fact that you point out like oh this came from this and report this came from there like this is the real deal <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate you guys saying that i you know again in my in my day job you know research is something you know that that, that i'm pretty familiar with and uh but 
But again, it, it turned out great, so I will definitely be coming back to the Never Was concept uh, uh, very soon. So next up, we you sent us the the backstories and magical secrets of Walt Disney World. Now this is Volume One, and my first thought was, our right, whenever I see Volume One, I like, what am I getting myself into here? How many volumes you planning here? What are you thinking? Well, it's funny. You, you, my editor asked me that, uh, and I initially told him four. Right, so I, I said I want to do a volume for each of the four major theme parks. Um, then I had to call him up a couple of months later and say, listen, uh, you know, this Magic Kingdom version is actually going to take two volumes. And he, he almost came through the phone and, and, and strangled me. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, again, uh, you know, what we're talking about is just just as a little bit of flavor for for, for this series of books. Um, I started thinking, you know, what is it about, you know, Walt Disney World that, you know, creates such, you know, an emotional response from fans, right? I mean, you've got, right now, you've got four grown men, you know, sitting here talking about um, an amusement park, right? You know, oh, what, yeah. what is it about this place that does that? Because I'm an amusement park fan generally, right? You guys mentioned Six Flags and Cedar Point. Love those places, right? Love Six Flags, love going up to Cedar Point. Um, but I think we can all agree that Disney is different, right? It's a different experience than those sure. other experiences. And so I started thinking about the specific things that I love about Disney, you know, the cast members and the attractions and the architecture and the food. And what I realized was for me, all those things combined uh, into the one really special thing, which is allowing us as guests to leave the stress and the worry of the real world behind by stepping inside these stories that Disney's Imagineers and creative teams kind of lay out on a grand stage for us and let us kind of be a part of those stories. Um, and so that kind of started, you know, um, a, a, a much more fun research process uh, for, for, for this book, which was, hey, getting in there and just dissecting every detail I could possibly uh, see about the different lands and attractions and restaurants uh, uh, in, in, in the parks. And you go and you go deep on this one. Like I have like my notes here about this. I have almost forty pages on the haunted mansion itself. Like that's that's insane <laughs> to me. And that's like you were kind of talking about the detail of Disney and where it goes. I mean, there's some trips where I just want to go and relax and just, you know, have everybody take care of everything. And then there's other trips where I'm sitting there on my phone, like, hey, why'd they put this here? And you can you can kind of go as deep as you want and this this volume one and you know, I'm sure the next one's coming too are allow you to do go as deep as you really want. And if you really want to read about one small smidgen of Haunted Mansion, it's in here. Yeah, and, and here's what I here's what I thought, because I you know, really, you know, again, I, I talked to my editor a lot about this in the planning stage is I think there are there are a lot of books out there on the market where, you know, you get a story or two here and there, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, they pull you know a story from the Haunted Mansion, they pull a story from Expedition Everest. Like but there's not like some, def you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm obsessive. I want to know what the stories are in Liberty Square. I want to know what the stories are in Frontierland. And I, there wasn't a resource out there that just kind of laid as many of these out um, as, as reasonably feasible to do, right? Uh, so that's what I wanted to accomplish. Now, I'm the first to admit that, and this is what I love about Disney, you know, even for me, you know, each time I go, you know, use the Haunted Mansion specifically, Every time I go on the Haunted Mansion, I feel like I see something new that I haven't seen before, right? Even though I've got, you know, so many pages in the book devoted to those different stories and those different hidden details and secrets, 
you always see something new, right? And just for, very, for a guy like this man, I think that's fantastic. Thick with detail and things. And yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But again, it's 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 fun for me to be able to hopefully. The goal is to to help kind of you know shed some light and and help enhance people's experiences of the parks and the attractions by virtue of some of these stories uh, that many many are unfortunately uh, not aware of. And that's being not aware. One of my favorites, which, you know, you if you go to Disney with anybody, we'll say that is is not like us. We'll say they they walk right down Main Street. They maybe hit a shop, get their Starbucks and keep moving. The windows up there always are like, you know, tell people look up and they see the windows on Main Street. And you're like, well, what's the deal? They just look like windows. But you go into in depth here on each window, who they are, kind of that sort of thing. And kind of, you know, it's to me, that's always a fun thing. I almost wish I had an app with that on my phone where I could like pull it up and like look real quick, compare the window to what I'm actually seeing. But your book has got each one in there. It's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, that's I think that, you know, that is probably, you know, other than the Disney legend designation, that that's about as high of an honor as someone who's either a Disney executive or an Imagineer can have. Uh, And really, you know, what I hope that people get out of out of those descriptions is, is just, you know, to to for them to to educate and, and learn who a guy named Joe Potter is. Right. And and to to hopefully, you know, shed some light on the accomplishments of, of, of a lot of a lot of brilliant Disney people that uh, the average everyday guest may not know about. And I have to throw this out here. Um, my sister's a listener to the podcast. and Every time she's listening, she goes, you mentioned me. And I go, yeah, I did. Um, every trip she books the Liberty Tree Tavern. And I know she would get a kick out of the chapter in here where you go into the different dining rooms and the, the reasons behind them. Like, I mean, if if you're looking at like details on, you know, why this is on this. I mean, there's there's details in this book about the dining place. I mean, it's just awesome. It's such a deep dive in this book. Well, well, here's what I love, right? I mean, so, you know, let's, let's, let's use Liberty Street Tavern as a good example, right? So mm-hmm. you've got this, this, this restaurant that, uh, that serves up comfort food, right? So Thanksgiving meals year-round. Um, I don't think that the Disney company really needed to do anything from a thematic standpoint, and this restaurant would be popular. Right. You know, you could yep. say the same thing for the Pecos, Bill Tall, Tellin and Cafe and Frontierland, you know, a quick service restaurant. I think both of those locations just in of themselves because of the food offerings would be overwhelmingly popular with guests. But rather than resting on that, they decided to do the opposite. Right. They decided to pour just tons of detail into both of those restaurants. And for the Liberty Tree Tavern specifically, you know, again, I, it breaks my heart when I'm eating in there and I'm in a particular dining room and nobody notices all the, what I think. The, the, God, you know, if you're in the park, I in the didn't until I saw your room. book. Had no clue. <laughs> I've been there probably yeah. 50 times. <laughs> well, that's you see, there you go, man. It's it, it's just amazing. And even for a guy like me, and I and again, I, I actually in the in the I think in my in the closing of that book, I, I apologize to all the Disney fans that I either you know you know, made mad because I was backing up a queue, you know, taking pictures of every box and every sign and also <laughs> just wandering around dining rooms in the Liberty Tavern, which is a small dining area <laughs> and taking pictures of things. But again, I think, man, that really enhances the experience because there's a story there, right? There's a story to Liberty Square as a whole and there's a story to the Liberty Tavern specifically about these different, um, you know, you know, prominent, um, you know, important leaders from the colonial era, you know, with each of those diners being dedicated to, you know, to George Washington or Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson and different thematic details within those dining rooms that help support that story. And again, 
I just think that's fantastic when, again, Disney, I don't think, had to do that to keep guests funneling through uh, uh, to, to spend money and, and, and buy the food. For sure. So we're looking at Volume 2. What's that one going to be? Are you cramming all three extra lands in that one? Or are you... Uh, I, well, my editor told me if we didn't end the Magic Kingdom on this one, he was he was done with it. So, <laughs> so we we will we will definitely get the other three lands. And what's what's interesting is Volume One, you know, based on Main Street USA, Liberty Square, and Frontierland, uh, you know, all of those are are grounded and based in 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 real world United States history. Yeah. Right. So Main Street USA, you know, the the the, the turn of the 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 twentieth century. Uh, Liberty Square, the colonial era, and then front, frontier land, you know, um, uh, you know, the old west time period. The other three lands that are that i'm I'm trying to finish up now, Tomorrowland, Fantasyland, and Adventureland, are more so you know based on you know imagination and fantasy as opposed to real world history. Um, and I think you know again, just like with the first volume, I think there are some great stories and and, and some great details that are hopefully, um, educate some fans on what the storytelling process is um, uh, is in those lands. And I will tell you guys, Tomorrowland almost killed me. Right? <laughs> I was wondering uh, that because you're. I'm sitting there going, okay, do you focus on? And this is how I think of Tomorrowland: the the old white part that had nothing in it. Do you focus on the redo of the '90s, which was like my childhood, or do you focus on like you know what what's coming or what's what scraps are left from the past two rebuilds? Well, the, the the answer to that is all. Got it. <laughs> right? uh, but because what what's fascinating about Tomorrowland is it's the only land of the Magic Kingdom that was completely rethemed, you know, you know, uh, you know, and and just you know a completely new backstory created, right? I mean, yes. for them to just kind of put the brakes on twenty years in and say, you know what, this original theme of of real world, what might come tomorrow, isn't working. We need to do something else, um, and you know, because of the just the tremendous amount of turnover in the land, by far the most attractions they've ever called a Disneyland home are Tomorrowland. Right? You've got upwards of thirty attractions that have called the land home, and just the story of how that land evolved was really kind of a fascinating research project for me. Very cool. We're excited for Volume 2. So once again, this was the backstories and magical secrets of Walt Disney World Volume 1, focusing on Liberty Square, Frontierland, and Main Street. Um, and then I'm assuming Epcot, MGM are getting their own volumes. Do you they do, are. Are you doing it, Animal it, it, Kingdom? I am. As a matter of fact, I think um, you know, I've got to get my, my schedule lined out. I, what I, in the backstory series, Animal Kingdom will probably come next. Just oh, because, really? uh, you know, with Pandora being open, that land has got a good foothold now. The studio certainly is, is in a, is, you know, <laughs> yeah, get, just you know, wait. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on there. And then uh, Epcot also, right? Mm-hmm. You've got so much new stuff going on there. So I wanted to, you know, ideally I would have done Epcot next just to keep it, you know, in terms of when the park's open. But I think just because of what all is going on in each of those parks, uh, I think Animal Kingdom will be next. Very cool. Well, we appreciate you sending these, you know, talking to us, letting us know what's in them. And I mean, they're, 
Like like Hal said, they're really good reads. They're, I kind of look at the Backstories book as sort of one that either I would read, because I, I drive to my trips, usually like the long vacations, like on the drive down, if I was sitting in the car, or after you get back from the parks, you sort of like, you know, look up some things. That's sort of like the way I look at it. It's like a well-researched, documented, uh, you know, Wikipedia version almost. You almost need it. To me, you need, you need an app base for this. Like, I want just like clickable links to go to. That would be so <laughs> awesome. So tell your editor that's next. That's I'll, I'll, I'll let him know. <laughs> so, uh, anything else guys? No, we're no? just looking just, forward to it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's fascinating. All right, Chris. Well, thanks so much. We appreciate it. We'll put links, uh, below and in the podcast notes to, uh, where they can buy these. Uh, I'm assuming they're all on Amazon, right? Yes, that's correct. That's you where get them, everything's get on Amazon. Amazon. Okay. Hey, cool. Man. Appreciate that. Yep. All right. Well, thanks again, Chris. And uh, that's going to wrap up this episode. And uh, we will see you very soon for the full episode 42. Uh, did we have a topic, guys? I'm trying to remember. Yes, we did. Uh, well, we did, but we're not. We may be changing because as I've been diving into, I we said we were going to do. Well, we talked about doing the the animation tour, the yes, magic of Disney right. animation. It did, and as I started doing research on it and started getting in contact with people that uh, actually worked there, both in front of the glass and behind the glass. It's starting to get a lot more comprehensive than I than I uh, ever uh, thought it was going to be. And I realized we have a really unique opportunity to, to actually tell a very holistic story about that building. So I think we may push that one off for another month so we can do some more interviews and, and talk to some more folks. And then uh, we'll, we'll do something else. Uh, a full sure. episode on the Magic Kingdom popcorn carts. Yes. yes. <laughs> We'll what's, have something. What's crazy, though, about that animation thing, this is just a sidebar, is you put that tweet out, and if you follow us on Twitter, at uh, RetroWDW, it blew my mind, the response. I mean, just and in, in not just like, yeah, I worked there, it was cool. I mean, huge, long emails from people. Like, you can tell it really is, like, a big thing to people, like, as far I, as, like, you know. I had a feeling that that probably meant a lot to some people. Because that was really the only opportunity that anybody ever had to go and see animators working. And not just animators, but, you know, editors, camera people, background painters, you know, every discipline. You were never, maybe you saw some some old, you know, Walt Disney Presents specials, but you certainly never were able to press your face against a glass and see, you know, uh, a, a legitimate Disney animator, like, working on something in front of your very eyes, especially once they got out of the shorts and started into the the feature-length film. So just to see someone doing bits of Lion King or the entirety of Mulan or uh, Lilo and Stitch, I mean, that knocked people's socks off. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how many people who are actually in the animation industry today have written us and, and just talked about how much of an impact that left on them. That's crazy. Well, okay, so we'll we'll be we'll be coming soon. Don't worry. Next full length episode, and uh, in the meantime, while you're waiting on us, go get Chris's books on Amazon. Uh, you will definitely not regret it. They're super awesome. So, all right, and do we for, and do we want to give one away tonight? Oh, to a yeah. listener. Yes, let's, let's give one away tonight to a listener. Uh, just email us at podcast.retrodisneyworld.com, and uh, Chris, send out a give us just off the top of your head, do a trivia thing, and whoever gets you know the answer. We'll, uh, we'll get the book. All right. Um, right on the spot the, here. <laughs> hey, man, that, that's what I'm built for, right? <laughs> so uh, w- one of the, the, the uh, Disney resorts that never came to be was the Asian Resort, right, that was planned, uh, planned very early on. A lot of marketing information put on, was put out about it. Obviously never came to be. 
what Disney Resort was constructed in the area that was originally planned for the Asian Resort. That's beautiful. Good one. Beautiful question. So if you know the answer to that, send it to podcast at retrowdw.com. Uh, and let's make uh, an entry. Let's get your entries in by August 10th. Perfect. Plenty of time. And uh, yeah, send us that and we'll get you a copy of the book of your choosing. So There we go. Nice. Uh, all right. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day and we will see you with episode 42. Brian, take us out. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen and on the web at kingdomofmemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at rubbercitymotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles.